Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Timothy O'Connor. But now we've ended up denying the very premise that gets the argument going, right? The premise being, it seems like this world could have been otherwise. Now it, it turns out, after all, in Leibniz's this picture, just like with Spinoza, that the world couldn't have been otherwise. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Timothy O'Connor is a professor of philosophy at Indiana State University in Bloomington and has published many books and articles on free will, metaphysics, philosophy of mind, philosophy of religion, and other subjects. He is also the self-declared Philopong Grand Champion, a.k.a. the world's finest ping-pong player among professional philosophers. But today we'll be discussing his 2008 book, Theism and Ultimate Explanation. Tim, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks, Luke, for having me. I strongly support your aim to take philosophy to the street, illustrating how conversation on these vital issues can be carried out in a careful, civil, and uh, constructive way by people who disagree about them. So it's really terrific, and thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, Tim, your book tries to clarify the metaphysics of theism, a very important project, I think, because my mind and a lot of people's minds are boggled by the claims that theism makes. That God is postulated to be something totally different than the things that we normally know about. He's timeless, yet thinking, non-physical, but physically causes things. He is spaceless and yet acts in space, omnipotent and omniscient and omnibenevolent. How the heck are we supposed to make sense of what such a theory means, let alone figure out whether or not it's true? How does a philosopher like yourself approach these types of questions? Great opening question. The history of both philosophy and science uh, teach us that significant theories about really big, really fundamental ideas are going to uh, involve in interesting challenges, unresolved problems, just dangling threads of one sort or another. But the really good theories also generally turn on simple uh, core ideas that seem incredibly fruitful, leading to all kinds of interesting uh, further hypotheses, drawing connections between other things that we already believe. Uh, I, I think that theism, the classic monotheism, the claim that there exists an absolutely perfect transcendent being, is much like that, actually. It's much like uh, very fundamental, fruitful ideas in the sciences and, and in philosophy. And uh, the fact that it is, I think, is partly responsible for uh, theism, theism's enduring attraction to many thoughtful, intelligent thinkers. Uh, the concept of God is actually, at its root, quite simple. As Descartes put it, it's absolute pure perfection. I think that's a good way to uh, summarize core notion of God. That's a, a, a very simple idea. Now, the ramifications of that idea are uh, rich and do give rise to interesting challenges, some of which you've already alluded to. There's been a long history in, in philosophy, and of course, the history of philosophy is bound up with the history of uh, theology and indeed of science as well. And philosophers have had a lot to say about how to resolve different ones of those challenges. But as with all philosophical problems, there's a lack of consensus on any given approach, uh, including the negative approach, that challenges cannot be met. Uh, one very influential uh, idea was well articulated by Thomas Aquinas and his doctrine of analogy. 
Uh, and so Aquinas, while insisting on what you said, that God is postulated to be something totally different from the things we know about Aquinas, what wanted to emphasize that God was radically other than created reality. But he would insist that we can have some knowledge about God, but it's by way of analogy. It's always by way of analogy. So we postulate that God, uh, or we, we come to believe by reflecting on the concept of pure perfection, that God is a minded entity, is a thinker, right? And we're thinkers, so, so we have familiarity with the concept of thought. But of course, the way thought uh, takes place in God is, as you say, radically different from with human beings. With human beings, we process ideas over time, one after another, and God is, is said to be omniscient, knowing of all truths, and this doesn't take place by way of succession. The idea that God is timeless is somewhat controversial. That, that has been a very common claim in the history of philosophical theology to say that God is absolutely outside time. But a number of important thinkers, including you know, sort of devout religious thinkers, have wanted to say that's not right. So it's not a completely settled matter on some of these very somewhat esoteric metaphysical issues, just how we should think about the nature of God. But you know, there are, there are powerful arguments for why God would have to be timeless, and there are ways that philosophers have tried to make sense out of the, the concept of God as a, a radically timeless being. A great resource for people interested in this, I mean, this is something that's debated by philosophers today, lots of journal articles and even books. Um, Brian Leftow, a professor of uh, philosophical theology at Oxford, has a great book, Time and Eternity, which published a couple decades ago, which is, uh, I think, probably the first place to go to if you want to explore that particular issue. So I, I would want to say that, I guess to summarize what I've been saying, the concept of God is, you know, when we say we cannot make sense out of it, that I'd be very careful about that language. I think we can make perfectly good sense out of the concept of God. It's understanding the full ramifications of it that we don't fully grasp it. But that's not especially surprising, right? If underlying the world is an absolutely, infinitely perfect being, it should not be terribly surprising that finite thinkers such as ourselves, even the best among us, would not be in a position to fully grasp all the implications. And furthermore, you know, you think about the history of science, I think sometimes people have a naive picture of science that we all seem to get from our grade school courses in science, that science is very simple, it involves looking at a little phenomenon in the world, coming up with an idea, testing the idea, and then say, okay, either idea is correct or not. It's all, it seems all very simple and transparent. But when you get down to deep fundamental theories, you know, like theories of physics, cosmology, Einsteinian relativity, or quantum mechanics, or theory of the small, there's deep conceptual puzzles associated with them. And yet, people are also committed to thinking that they at least approximate the truth. We have very powerful evidence in favor of our theory of the smallest workings of matter, quantum mechanics. We also have very powerful evidence in favor of our theory of the large-scale structure of the universe, um, cosmology. And yet, in particular with the, the case of our theory of the small, very few people who are knowledgeable about the theory would claim they really understand it fully. There, there are deep conceptual problems. We don't need to go into those now. You could interview a philosopher of physics. Uh, it would be a great subject for your show, <laughs> the mysteries of quantum mechanics. But of course, people don't just leave it at that. They're, they're trying harder to come up with a clarified, better understanding. But, but there are real puzzles. And this is just dealing with the material world around us, which seems like such a familiar phenomenon to all of us, right? But when you really examine it and probe its fundamental nature, it gives rise to all kinds of puzzles. 
Those are perhaps familiar to everybody. For people who study philosophy, it's also quite familiar trying to understand really basic categories about the world, the nature of individuals and their properties, uh, the nature of causation, sort of all these metaphysical issues that I spend a lot of time thinking about. While they seem very simple, and we all think we know what we're talking about, when you really try to uh, analyze um, what these these notions uh, come to, they're, they're a really deep puzzle, and uh, it's very perplexing. In fact, Bertrand Russell uh, famously um, described a philosophical problem as something that when, when you first encounter it, it seems so obvious as to be hardly worth remarking on, and yet you end up coming up with theories that seem so ridiculous that one could hardly believe them. <laughs> and that's a very familiar um, situation in philosophy. Right. And, and the, the, moral, the moral, I guess, is that um, uh, right beneath the surface of what we think we understand well lurk really deep mysteries and conundrums. A philosopher is not content to just leave it at that. We want to understand things as best we can. But the history of philosophy encourages a, a strong dose of, of modesty in all of us to think we're ever going to get to the truly get to the bottom of all these things. We can make progress, but we're unlikely to get a full, completed understanding. So we can just say, okay, those problems are done, we can move on. And I think the same is true in philosophical theology, where you attempt philosophically to reflect on the concept of God and theorize about the nature of God and God's relationship to the world. I think that people have made progress. There's a lot of wealth of progress in the history of the subject, but I also would be very skeptical about thinking we would ever get to the bottom of it. Well, you say that Aquinas's approach to arguing about something totally other than our normal experience was arguing by analogy. So when we talk about God thinking, it's not really like how humans or computers think, but it might be something kind of similar. Is that right. your approach? And also, is that an approach that's used in other fields of study, like perhaps cosmology? Something like Aquinas' approach, I would endorse. It's a little bit controversial exactly how to understand what, what Aquinas thought uh, on this subject. I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. I have a way of thinking about, about it that I would endorse, which is to say there's a kind of, you might say, abstract functional concept of thought. And then that abstract concept gets manifested in us in a certain way the job of the cognitive sciences to try to better understand what that way is exactly. But we can identify a core concept and we can speculate about minds that are not human minds, right? Obviously other intelligent animals, but also we can, we can speculate about minds that were, were not rooted in biology at all, you know, maybe silicon-based mentality. We could speculate about that, and, and when we do so, we, we use categories of thought, belief, desire, and so forth right. in very abstract ways, right? Uh, and so it might not have quite the same experiential quality as it does for us, but we would still identify these beings as thinkers. So similarly with the concept of God, you know, if God is indeed timeless, if God exists and is timeless, then yes, his self-experience is totally unimaginable to time-bound beings like ourselves. But that doesn't mean that concepts of belief and uh, even you know, justified belief, knowledge, intention, purpose could not still apply to God. We, we need an argument to tell us that they could not possibly be realized in such a, a mind of that sort. There have been arguments given for that and other claims. I'm not impressed by them myself, so I, I, I don't think they're, they're compelling. Well, you say that you would need an argument against the possibility that, say, 
belief, desire, intentionality can't be realized outside of a physical system. But I wonder, why would you think that the burden of proof would be on the person trying to show that that's not possible as opposed to the burden of proof being on the person who supposes that that is a coherent concept even though it's never been really observed. Like, for example, I'm thinking if somebody were to tell me that their theory of the multiverse or something involves spaceless skyscrapers, I'm not sure who the burden of proof would be on there. It would seem to me I would have to explain how spaceless skyscrapers is a coherent concept as opposed to saying, well, you can't disprove that spaceless skyscrapers is... Right, but I mean, think about your example. I think we can disprove, right, because the very concept of a skyscraper is the concept of a physical building occupying space, indeed occupying a relatively large portion of space compared to other human artifacts. Uh, And so right off the bat, a contradiction is suggested, but I don't think our concept of thought is bound up with specific, you know, things that we would now think are at least intimately involved in human cognition, right, neural processes of various kinds, that we're just beginning to come to some degree of understanding of, right? I mean, people had the concept of thought long before they ever knew about neurons, neural assemblies, and, and, and such like. And indeed, many people have found very attractive the thought that human mentality is entirely divorced from physical phenomena, although undoubtedly stained by the continuing biological function of, of uh, our, our physical bodies. Now, this idea may be false. The fact that people could could coherently entertain the idea, and indeed many important thinkers, having been dualist about the nature of mind, thinking mind is something radically other than anything physical, it's not been the typical reaction in the history of reflective discussion to just say, well, that's I don't even know what you're saying there. Mentality doesn't seem conceptually connected to physical processes of any particular sort in a way that skyscraper, just right on the surface of it, they're, they're physical concepts. Think of all the movies, fiction stories we all have read from childhood on, even as adults, and we sort of play along without any conceptual, you know, we don't all get totally confused when we have ideas of you know, ghostly people uh, leaving their bodies and looking down at their bodies on operating tables and, and such. Now, all this might be factually false that this ever occurs, but we, we don't have any problem imagining it. And uh, there's indeed empirical work in developmental psychology that suggests that children have no problems with the concept of uh, themselves or or even of uh, God as being a non-physical reality. Well, I want to pursue this example just a bit more because I think it'll illuminate this concept of arguing by analogy rather than with more precise terms that we would use if we had them. Let's ignore the mental and physical apparent correlation uh, what about thinking and time? Doesn't it seem like thinking is more conceptually tied to time in that, you know, I think of thinking as I have one thought and then I have another thought and then I combine right. those thoughts and then that results in, at a later time, uh, an additional thought, that kind of thing. So isn't thinking conceptually tied to time? And if you're going to say that it's only by analogy that we talk about thinking then what's the border of analogy? Like, why couldn't I say that, well, it's only by analogy that I talk about a spaceless skyscraper? Okay. First thing to say is it's not obvious to me. I'm, a, I'm of two minds on the question of thinking of God as a uh, timeless being. Uh, I, I actually incline towards thinking God's life must be temporal in some sense. Okay. 
but I'm willing to play along. You know, I could be wrong about that, uh, and that certainly has not been the dominant view in the history of philosophical theology. So let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that God should be thought of as a timeless being. Then I think what you'd have to say is, well, you'd look at different, we, we have a variety of thought concepts, mental ability concepts, and maybe some of them would be applicable to God and some not. So you're right, especially if we put it as thinking, that carries with it the idea of process. Right, and so if God is timeless, there would be no literal succession of one moment to another in God's life, so there could be no process in God's life. So God wouldn't engage in thinking, but that would not be to say that God would not have mental states. It would just be God timelessly would be aware of truth, right, but without any sort of needing to draw rational inferences or, you know, engage in planning in the way that human beings do. These are temporal processes. And so the timeless God theologian would say, right, God doesn't engage in thinking, he doesn't engage in planning, he doesn't remember, he doesn't anticipate, but he is aware, he grasps all truths, he timelessly is engaged in a creation of the world, which we experience as an unfolding reality, but God stands in a timeless relationship to all of it. And he does so with a timeless intention, some purpose, goal to be achieved. So you would say, so God would be to some degree like us and to some degree not. Certain of our mental categories, they don't seem to be obviously at odds with the idea of a timeless nature. Others do. And so you would just say God is not a thinker wholly like us. But of course, they hasten to add, you know, planning, anticipating, these are important to us only because we are finite beings who are not aware of all truths instantaneous, who um, have to plan for the future because we can't, in a simple unitary act of will, accomplish all that we desire. So these are actually reflections of our finiteness rather than something integral to or really valuable for their own sake in, in any kind of thinking being. Well, this segues into a question I have about God and simplicity. You said earlier that one of the attractions for many people uh, for the theistic hypothesis is that it's very simple and it might provide a very simple explanation for a wide variety of phenomena. But it's hard for me to grasp what's meant by simple there because God seems to me like an extraordinarily complex hypothesis in that God is supposed to be a being who has lots and lots of thoughts, whether or not he thinks as a process, he has relationships, he, in the Christian view, incarnates himself into a complex physical biological body, he has relations to all kinds of things in the universe and has knowledge. How is it that that kind of being is simple in any meaningful way? Good. Well, I did say it was the core concept of God that is fairly simple. Consider the concept of a triangle. I think most people would say that's a pretty simple concept. Sure. Not as simple as the concept of a line or a point, right? Those are even simpler geometrical concepts, but it's still a pretty simple concept. So it's a simple concept, yet it has lots of implications that are far from simple, right? So lots of surprising implications. So in in two-dimensional plane geometry of a Euclidean sort, the sum of the interior angles of any triangle, no matter what the particular shape of the triangle or size, the, the sum of those interior angles adds up to 180 degrees. That's a lot less simple of, a, of an idea than the basic 
uh, concept of a triangle. You can explain the mm-hmm. you know, four-year-olds can grasp the concept of a triangle. They're not going to grasp the idea of this general fact about all triangles that involve angles of degree and so forth. You probably couldn't teach a typical four-year-old anything like that. And there are plenty other implications of uh, various kinds of triangles, right? Isosceles uh, triangles and you know all that. Remember all that stuff from high school geometry. So this is kind of a rough analogy to what I'm talking about when I say the concept of God is simple on the surface, pure, limitless perfection. So we haven't talked about the specific attributes involved. We just said whatever attributes it has, it has in a limitless way, and it has all and only those attributes which are, in some sense, pure perfection, features it would be better to have than not to have other things being equal, something like that. But now we have to say, well, what would those perfections be? We we get into puzzles about how they're related to one another. Can you be both perfectly good and perfectly free? Doesn't freedom imply the ability to do what's morally wrong as well as what's morally right, and yet God is said to be perfectly good and incapable of doing evil, right? There's a puzzle. Can you be omniscient and be perfectly free? Wouldn't being omniscient entail that you already know what you're going to do before you've decided to do it? Lots of internal puzzles. That if you take any introductory course that deals with the concept of God, like a course in philosophy of religion, you, you survey these sorts of puzzles. Then there are all kinds of puzzles about how such a being would relate to its created reality. So now we're getting into various kinds of complexities and puzzles and so forth, right? But it's all generated by this simple concept. And, and I said that it's attractive insofar as we see how it could potentially explain some phenomena that we couldn't otherwise explain. I want to immediately say, talking about that, the kinds of facts that God would explain, there's, of course, been an unfortunate tendency among some religious thinkers to want to appeal to God to to explain very specific facts about the world that, at the time, didn't have perhaps a very good scientific explanation, so-called God of the gaps, textile explanations. We don't seem to understand this phenomenon, therefore perhaps God did it, right? Like right now, we don't have a good understanding about the transition from non-life to life. Right. Certain types of theistic thinkers inevitably want to appeal. Oh, so that was a special act of creation. God especially originated life somewhere a few billion years ago on planet Earth because we can't see how the transition might have occurred. Right? We have some ideas that are promising, but we have no good, well-developed theory, let alone a well-confirmed theory. I myself would strongly discourage people from thinking of God as explanatory in that sort of way. As if somebody like Aquinas would have himself emphasized Creation has its own integrity, right? It's, it's a kind of reality that unfolds in accordance with its own principles. God might not miraculously intervene for some specific purposes, but we wouldn't want to appeal to God to explain things that potentially we could see a scientific explanation for. But I think there are very general fundamental facts about reality that are too big even for science to ever address in principle. Now, it takes some work to persuade people of this, right? Because I, I can well imagine people would be suspicious. Well, how can you say from the get-go that science could answer that sort of question? But, you know, the question of contingent reality itself, you know, that just existing things around us. But what could we envision to be the ideal, most successful scientific approach in basic physics? Well, boiling everything down to one fundamental principle or dynamical law or something like that, governing one fundamental type of entity, you know, deeper than the categories we have now of electrons and quarks and so on, right? Imagine that you could get it you could get down to deeper, down to one fundamental kind of entity unfolding in one dynamical way in accordance with some simple dynamical 
equation or, or principle. Right? Then physics would be done. You can't get any simpler than that. <laughs> That's the kind of ideal limit. Right? This is what a famous physicist Steven Weinberg, Nobel Prize winner, calls uh, the dream of a final theory. You know, mm -hmm. that there could be an equation of the universe that could be so simple you could put it on a t-shirt. Uh, we could all walk around with the, the equation of the universe, right. the most fundamental explanatory principle. Uh, suppose it does happen. Then we could say, but why is there anything that answers to that principle? And here I think, you know, science can't address that. Science is in the business of trying to describe in the simplest, most elegant kind of way possible the deepest explanatory principle governing what exists. But why things exist to begin with is beyond the reach of science. It's not an empirical kind of question. Now, someone could posit that the empirical world exists of absolute necessity or something like that, like Spinoza did. But when you do that, you're doing metaphysics. And I think that's a legitimate metaphysical hypothesis, and it needs to be compared with others. I myself think that theism provides the best sort of route here for potentially uh, giving us an explanation for existence itself. And that's what I wrote my book about. So just going back real quickly to this idea of God as simple and yet having very complex implications, maybe another illustration here would be something like the Mandelbrot set, where the equation is extremely simple, but the implications are endlessly complex and rather amazing to look at when it's visualized. Yeah, that's a nice sort of pictorial version of what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, your book says a lot about possibility and necessity, this modal logic. Now, this is a tall order, but I'm hoping you can give us a brief introduction to modal thinking and uh, then sketch your own view on these concepts. Okay, good. Yeah. The concepts of possibility and necessity are very basic concepts that underlie a lot of explanatory theories, including scientific theories, I think it's implicit. When you're starting off, you're, you're trying to develop a scientific hypothesis. You have some phenomena, and you, you, you do some uh, careful observations. You, you accumulate some data, and you try to come up with an explanatory theory for it. There are certain assumptions one makes in trying to construct theories, namely that any true theory would have to be logically consistent. It couldn't contain completely contradictory elements where it asserts something both is and is not the case, right? Anytime we develop a theory, uh, you know, sometimes theories are complicated and scientists actually discover hidden contradictions in developing theories. The reaction isn't, well, hmm, let's go out and see, maybe maybe this contradictory theory is true, <laughs> right? No, it's, whoops, we got to change the theory. Either we junk the theory or we, we correct it, right? So, and why is that? Well, I, it's an implicit belief. Logically contradictory theories cannot be true. Right. That cannot is a, that's a modal concept. Saying It's not just saying it isn't true, it's saying it cannot be true, right? So we have this idea that fundamental principles of logic set an outer limit on what might possibly be true. So we have this idea that, that it's a kind of necessity. I mean, it's in fact the deepest kind of necessity, purely logical necessity. And there are other sorts of constraints, one might think, that add further structure. So think of necessity as kinds of structure that any possible reality would have to abide by. Mathematical consistency as well. The notions of the natures of things, this kind of idea of essence, right? That water cannot exist in the absence of hydrogen. Why not? Well, it's part of its nature that it be uh, hydrogen and oxygen atoms bound up in a certain characteristic structure that we call H2O. 
right? That's what water is. It's not logically contradictory to say there's water in the absence of hydrogen, and yet there absolutely could not be water in the absence of hydrogen. There could be water-like stuff, but not water, not our stuff, right? Because that's what its deep nature is. Chemistry reveals to us its deep nature. So we have this idea of things having certain natures that, that put constraints on the scope of possibility. Mm. So now we think about the world itself, and our naive tendency is to think this world need not have existed. There could have been other kinds of realities. I mean, science fiction dreams about different ways things might have been. You know, think of uh, just the most trivial little feature of the world. Uh, so I'm looking at a desk in front of me, and there's a tiny little smudge from a little coffee stain on my table. It sure seems for all the world like reality might have been such that that little smudge wasn't there on my table. Well, if that's so, then that raises the question, why are things as they are? And of course, you might say, well, science talks about that. Science tries to give an explanation of why things as they are. True. Those explanations always involve appealing to some factor or other that can't itself be explained. Right. If you explain the behavior of water, there's this sort of liquid kind of nature of water that's different from the behavior of solid objects uh, in terms of the chemistry of liquids. But that chemistry appeals to properties, kinds of underlying entities that are assumed to work a certain way, but without an explanation. And then you go further and further. You go to the deepest physics we have right now, you know, the behavior of an electron, the tendency to repel other electrons and attract positively charged particles. That's just posited to be, based on observation, the way electrons function. But why are our most fundamental entities that constitute the world why are they of that sort? We could imagine there being different kinds of fundamental properties that, that the world might have consisted in, mm -hmm. rather than electric charge or mass or whatever physics takes to be basic. And it seems like, in principle, there are going to be some appeals or other to this is the way things are at rock bottom. And that's it. But it seems deeply unsatisfying to just say, and it just is that way. Yeah, things could have been quite different, they just are the way they are, and there's no explanation available in principle. It's not just that we don't have the explanation, but there couldn't be an explanation because there's, there's no explanation out there to be had. It just is. It's just a brute fact, right? It could have been otherwise, and yet it's incapable of explanation. That's kind of offensive <laughs> to our, our reason, right? Because we always assume there are explanations to be had for phenomena, even if we're not capable of, of saying what they are. It's deeply... I think, hardwired into our way of approaching the world, that there, there's always going to be an explanation. When mysterious things happen in the world, we don't just say, hmm, maybe that's one of those things that just happened, uncaused, <laughs> right? We assume there is some explanation. I mean, some people sometimes will go in for supernatural explanations if, if something seems kind of weird or freakish out of the ordinary. Others would never go for a supernatural explanation, but both parties are committed to the idea that there's explanation of some kind to be had. So then the question is, well, existence itself, is there an explanation for that? And the long history of reflection in philosophy and theology on this suggests that any explanation you're going to give is going to appeal to the concept of necessity. There would have to be a kind of being that exists of absolute necessity. In the way that 2 plus 2 equals 4 doesn't just happen to be true, but is, we, we think, deeply necessary. Reality could not have been such that 2 plus 2 equaled anything other than 4. So a necessary being would be the sort of thing that, come what may, that being must exist. It's a kind of fundamental constraint on possibility. It's another structural element of any possible reality is the existence of such a being. But now, that's not an argument for the existence of 
God if you go that way. It's just saying, okay, any kind of explanation would involve this notion of necessary being. But now we could say, hmm, maybe that necessary being just is the world itself, right, conceived at, at its deepest, most fundamental. This is what Spinoza suggested. That's one hypothesis. Right. Or maybe some kind of string theory will turn out to be correct, and it turns out to be true that that kind of string theory is just necessary. Okay, but you've got to be careful there. Yeah, I mean, people have speculated about that. Maybe there's some sort of, the, the deepest theory is sort of mathematically necessitated somehow. It's hard to see how exactly that might go, but suppose, suppose that were so. We still wouldn't get an explanation if we just appeal to that, that there's some sort of, that there, there's only one mathematically consistent way for a world to be. You might have thought naively that there's lots of different ways worlds could have, worlds could be. There could be worlds with unicorns and, you know, worlds without gravity and so forth. But we were just mistaken about that. Once we come to really understand the scope of physical theories, we see that there's only one mathematically consistent way for things to be, and that's something like string theory or something. Yeah. We still have the question, yeah, but why is there a reality that answers to string theory? I mean, there might have been nothing at all. So you're going to have to make an appeal, I think, to Spinoza's idea of not just that if there's a reality, it has to conform to string theory, but you're going to have to go further and say the reality itself has this property of necessary existence. Why, why appeal to God? Why appeal to a transcendent being? Why complicate our picture of reality? If we need necessity, build it into what we already believe in. And I think if we could work that idea out in a satisfactory way, we'd have very good reason to do that. You never posit things for explanatory purposes if you can do without them. So the discussion about necessary being should begin with Spinoza's idea because it's the simplest, the most economical way of, of going about it. And that's why I talk about that in my book. I do devote a lot of time to saying that there are deep problems with going that route. But if you don't go that route, then you say, well, then it's some kind of other being transcendent of the world we know about that somehow gives rise to this contingent reality. Because if we're looking for an explanation, why is there this contingent stuff, this stuff that need not have existed, if we're going to appeal to some transcendent necessary being. But that could be a personal transcendent being in the way theism conceives, or it could be an impersonal reality, right? It could be some kind of impersonal universe-generating kind of reality of a hard-to-conceive sort. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I think that's an idea that has to be looked at very carefully. So the short of it is, a thing that we need to, if we're going to have a fully intelligible reality, we need to suppose that there is such a thing as necessary being that's just the beginning of a conversation. And there are different avenues mm -hmm. you could go mm -hmm. from that idea, and there's lots of room to argue. So that doesn't automatically point to theism. Right. So your book, Theism and Ultimate Explanation, is seeking what this ultimate explanation for the universe and everything we know of might be. And you present your own thoughts on the subject in the context of a kind of Leibnizian cosmological argument what was Leibniz's argument, and how do you think that your version improves upon it? Okay, good. So Leibniz's argument, which is much discussed in the history of philosophy, is actually expressed as much of Leibniz's philosophical thinking was in a very short little essay uh, that's often translated on the ultimate origination of things. It's like a three-page, typically printed out in a three-page format. It's a very simple little argument, but it has a a lot of powerful pull, and it's occasioned a lot of discussion. So Leibniz, he would give the argument in terms of what he called the principle of sufficient reason. Right. For every fact or existing entity whatsoever, there must be an explanation of why it is so rather than otherwise. 
and then we could suppose the universe has existed forever, but that still wouldn't give us that kind of ultimate explanation, right? Because we could imagine eternally there being a world that's different from the one that we inhabit, right? And so we still wouldn't have an explanation, yeah, but why this eternally existing, unfolding state of affairs rather than some other sort? Right. And that's how Leibniz's argument is differentiated from another popular cosmological argument called the Kalam cosmological argument. Right. I'm, I'm not at all sympathetic to the Kalam cosmological argument myself, which basically wants to argue that there would have to have been a temporal beginning. Leibniz's argument is very different from that. It doesn't presuppose anything of that sort. Mm-hmm. So Leibniz was perfectly happy to entertain the idea that the world has always existed. The example is, you know, you can imagine the world consisting of an endless series of monks copying manuscripts, right? Medieval monks copying manuscripts. You observe one of these fellows and you say, well, why is that happening? And then you're told, well, a previous monk had made an identical copy, and this monk is now copying that previous monk's work. And you say, okay, so why did that prior monk copy out the manuscript that it copied out? And you say, well, it was preceded by another monk who had copied out a, a manuscript that it had seen previously, and, and so on, without beginning. There have always been monks copying this particular manuscript. Now, that's an explanation of a sort, if it were true, but it still leads to a kind of question that you're not going to get an answer to in that sort of way, which is, yeah, but why is the world constituted by this endless series of monks copying manuscripts? Why copying the Bible? Why not the Quran? Why have monks at all? Why not, you know, any other number of infinite series of events? So Leibniz's argument starts from that and then says it would have to be that things originate in a necessary being, something because of its very nature could not have been otherwise. Right? So that's, in a nutshell, sort of Leibniz's idea. The only way to stop the regress of explanatory why questions is to have something that you might say is an intrinsic buck stopper. <laughs> right? The buck stops with the necessary being. You know, you say, yeah, but why does the necessary being exist? And the answer is, it couldn't have failed to exist. It's just like when you appeal to 2 plus 2 equals 4, and somebody says, but why is that true? You don't go on to give some kind of causal explanation of its truth. You say, you're not understanding it. Uh, it has to be true. <laughs> two plus two equals four. It's that kind of, it doesn't depend on particular facts about the way the world is. Mm-hmm. It's this abstract conceptual truth. Mm-hmm. It must be true. Now, a problem with Leibniz's view is because of the, the principle of sufficient reason, as he gives it, is a very strong principle. It doesn't just say everything must have an explanation. Uh, I would accept something like a principle of that sort. Uh, you have to be really careful about the way these things get formulated. His, his principle is there must be an explanation of why it is so and not otherwise. And that's a very strong kind of explanation. That, that's a kind of explanation that implies a kind of deterministic picture. Right? If there's an explanation not only why this world exists, but why it is not otherwise, then the world had to be the way it was. It seems to follow. So, so if the explanation is, well, God saw that it was the best of all possible worlds, and then if you further add, in God being infinitely wise, and infinitely good, uh, would inevitably choose to create the best of all possible worlds. He'd never go for a mediocre, semi-good world. He'd go for the best of all possible worlds. Mm-hmm. So then it seems like it, it's not possible to suppose that God, the necessary being, could have gone for uh, a lesser world. Well, now it looks like our world exists of necessity. Because why? Because we're the product of a necessary being who necessarily would choose a world that meets the specification of the best of all possible worlds. Mm-hmm. So now we've ended up denying the very premise that gets the argument going, right? The premise being, it seems like this world could have been otherwise. 
Now, it, it turns out, after all, in Leibniz's picture, just like with Spinoza, that the world couldn't have been otherwise. The only difference is, for Spinoza, the reason it couldn't have been otherwise is intrinsic to the world, intrinsic to its, its own nature, right? Because the world itself is a necessary being. On Leibniz's picture, it's not that the world itself is a necessary being intrinsically, but it's a necessary product of a necessary being. So it's kind of derivatively necessary. Mm-hmm. But it's still necessary. And so you still get the, the implication, which seems radically implausible, that, well, after all, things couldn't have been otherwise. Right? I mean, God had it within his power, yes, to create other realities, but it's absolutely necessary that he would not have exercised his power in any of those other ways, because then he would be doing less than his best. Mm-hmm. And God's incapable of doing less than his best. So, and that's a kind of disturbing implication. I mean, we'd still want to argue about it, but it's it's a disturbing implication. Disturbing, I mean, intellectually disturbing, not just just unsettling. We don't like it. But intellectually disturbing implication to to say that everything is true of absolute necessity. I mean, think about the moral implications of that. We ordinarily suppose we ought to intervene where, where we're able to without undue cost to ourselves to help alleviate suffering or to keep someone from suffering a, a horrible consequence when, when we're capable of, you know, preventing it. Well, why? Because then reality would be better if we could do so. But if everything about reality is absolutely necessary, it seems to have this strong fatalistic implication, right? Things are necessarily for the best. And whether I intervene in a way that I might have or simply refrain, it was inevitable. It was in the cards all along what I would do in a really strong sense. There was no possibility of that outcome having not occurred. Well, that seems to deflate the motivation for moral behavior. And there's lots of other strange consequences of the idea that all is necessity. You might even begin to say, you lose your grip on the very idea of necessity if everything's necessary. Usually we understand the idea of necessity in contrast to what we call contingency or possibility you know, things being otherwise. Some things are necessary, others are not, and we kind of understand the contrast. Mathematics, that's necessary. That there are books, <laughs> that's a contingent fact, right? An artifact of human history that might not have occurred. And we, and we grasp the distinction. But now if we say everything is necessary, do we really know what we're saying? So I think this is a really problematic implication of Leibniz's way of going at things. And it's also a problematic implication of Spinoza's way of going at things. What we're looking for is a way of grounding a truly contingent reality, a reality that might not have existed otherwise, in a reality that's necessary while still preserving explanation. We don't want the mm-hmm. contingent reality, our reality, to be brute without explanation. And I think that's possible. I think Leibniz just thought all explanation has to be of this strongly why this rather than that sort that entails kind of determinism, uh, necessitating explanation. And I think, you know, here's something I think we learned from science, contemporary 20th century science, on into this century, that there can be non-necessitating explanations. So our our fundamental physics, quantum mechanics, Mm -hmm. that governs how particles unfold, is not deterministic. That is, it's not of the form, give a total input state of the world, and it yields only one possible output. Instead, it says, given this total input, the state that this system is in, there are maybe three possible outcomes and each of these are weighted with some probability. Now, whatever happens, whether it goes down the left fork, the right fork, or the center fork, whatever path reality takes will not be without explanation. It will, uh, it will be a causal outcome of what has gone before. It's just that the causal mechanisms at work in the world at its most basic level are non-deterministic. 
or if you like, chancy or probabilistic. Mm-hmm. They cause outcomes, but without guaranteeing those outcomes. Right? They, they might not have caused those very outcomes, even given the identical circumstance. Things could have gone differently. But why did it go down that path rather than the other path? And the answer is no explanation at all. But there is an explanation for why it went down that path. That's a different question. If you're asking why A is a different question than asking why A rather than B. Those are two different questions. Leibniz thinks those are just the self-same question. That to explain why A occurs, you thereby explain why A rather than B. And I think he's just wrong about that. There can be non-necessitating kinds of explanations. And I think science strongly pushes us in this direction, our best contemporary science. So if there can be non-necessitating explanations, then you would look at the hypothesis that underlying our world is a transcendent personal reality that causes our world in accordance with certain purposes. And you'd say, God, if our world is truly contingent, if it need not have been the way it is, then God caused it to be the way it is in accordance with some goal. But he might have caused a different reality, perhaps in accordance with a different conflicting goal, or perhaps as a, a equally good way of achieving the same goal that he had, in fact, in creating our world. Mm. So it might have been God had created a different world, but there's still an explanation. It's not, like, it's not a random, freakish event that this world came about. God caused it, and he had a certain purpose in mind that he saw this kind of created order as fulfilling. It's just that it, that wasn't the only possible uh, reality that could satisfy purposes that he had. So that's the idea, and I think that an improved picture, we can preserve the idea that our world might have been very different from the way it is, and so it's a more satisfying picture. Now, if you would say that the world could be different if God had decided to act for different purposes or different goals, does that mean that some of God's properties on this view would not be essential, or are you understanding a goal or a purpose in some other way? Good. Good, yeah. So I do differ with some of the strong claims made by a lot of traditional philosophical theologians, especially in the Middle Ages, like Aquinas, on the idea that God's nature, God is absolutely simple, some weird <laughs> metaphysical sense. He, he doesn't, there's not even a distinction among God's attributes. He's just a maximally simple entity. And so there's no possibility of change within God. And it's hard to take that idea seriously and suppose that God might have created a different world. Because if he had, then wouldn't that entail engaging in a different kind of activity than what he, in fact, does? And wouldn't it entail his being aware of a different created order than what, in fact, is in front of him? Right? Wouldn't he have different beliefs about what is true? Right? If he, if he had created a different world, a world with quarks and a world without quarks, those are if God has all true beliefs about everything, including the created world, it seems like he'd have to have different beliefs. If there's contingency in what God creates, it seems like that means that God is different in the different possible scenarios that he might have selected. And I do think that. And so I think we have to make a distinction between God's essential attributes and contingent facts about God that are a consequence of any contingent creational activity he engages in. So God invariably has his same fundamental nature. And that's very important. If you don't say that, then we'd, we'd be back to the question, okay, what about this being God? If he's only contingently omnipotent, what explains the fact that he's you know, omnipotent? So we can't say that. The, the whole explanatory enterprise expounds. So the theory requires that God's core attributes be necessary. Just as he exists of necessity, he necessarily has the properties that he does, his core essential attributes. 
But if he can engage in contingent activity, that will imply that he might have been otherwise than he in fact is. So he might have been exercising his causal power to create in, in a different way than he in fact did. He, would, he might have had different beliefs about what was occurring uh, than he in fact has because there's a different reality. He would have had the same set of possible purposes. That would be part of God's nature possible goals that, that God would see as good goals to achieve in a created order. That would be invariant across any of these possibilities. Which goal he acts on would, would differ, and that would entail other differences, differences about his own beliefs, about what's occurring, and w- what he's purposing to do. Mm-hmm. Well, wouldn't it be the case that if God is essentially morally perfect, or necessarily morally perfect, then he would necessarily have some certain set of purposes or desires rather than others? Like, he would necessarily have the best possible set of purposes and desires? Yes, I think that's so. We've got to be a little bit careful. It does not follow from that, I think, that there is some one set of purposes that would be the best. Leibniz assumed that there was such a thing. I shouldn't say just that he assumed. He actually gave a little argument for it try to at least make the idea plausible that there's one best possible created reality. If that were so, I would agree that it's hard to see why God would not aim for such a best possible reality. After all, doing things doesn't cost God anything. <laughs> he doesn't extend energy in the way we do. Right? We have finite resources. We have trade-offs. None of that applies to God. So if there is a best possible created order, best balances all the kinds of considerations, features that go in to making a good created reality, then surely God would go for it. But I don't think we have good reason to think that there is such a best possible order. It seems like you could always improve upon any finite created order simply by adding more good things. You might need to expand the order, you know, make sure you don't want overcrowding. So, you know, but you just make a bigger space and it seems like, I mean, that, that's one simple reason. There, there are others, I think. It might be that there are interesting, good kinds of things that couldn't co-inhabit the same physical universe because they would require a different makeup to the universe, right? If that were so, then, you know, uh, God couldn't create both of them, at least within the same world, the same universe, because they're incompatible with each other. So for a variety of considerations could easily lead you to think it's not at all obvious that there's a best possible world, and if there isn't, then there's probably an infinite number of different ways that are equally good, and so God could choose from any of them. And so there could still be a great deal of contingency in what occurs. But these, these are big topics. Let me just say straight up that philosophers have talked about this kind of topic uh, at great length, and you get differing views on this. There's a, uh, a very good book by a philosopher, Bill Rowe, who's an atheist, called Must God Be Free. It came out just a few years ago, and he thinks there's a deep conceptual problem here for theism. He thinks we are pushed either towards saying there is a best possible world and then implausibly we have to say this is the best of all possible worlds with Leibniz, or we have to say God was less than a perfectly good creator because then it means that he must have chosen some good world knowing that there were better worlds to create, and so we could imagine a better creator, namely one that has higher minimum standards on the world that it might create. 
And it's an interesting sort of puzzle he sets up. I, I actually talk about that in my book. I don't buy that argument, but there's a lot of interesting arguments going on back and forth on just this topic. Yeah, well, we've opened a number of uh, Pandora's boxes during this interview, and I'll put some links, of course, in the podcast notes so that people can start to research the things that we've just barely scratched here. I want to conclude with a different sort of question because you present a sort of argument for the existence of God in theism and ultimate explanation, your work there has a great deal of similarity with the work that comes out of Christian apologetics. And I wonder if you might share your own view on what the role of the philosopher is and what the role of the apologist is and whether there's a difference there. Hmm. That's a good question. The origin of the term, of course, of uh, giving an apology or being an apologist, uh, different from our modern typical use of the word apology, is, of course, just giving a defense of something. But, of course, it has connotations when you speak about uh, religious apologists of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. People often associate with, you know, kind of like in debates. We all know when you go to a public debate, you're not listening to a discussion where people are both trying to figure out together what are the best considerations on both sides of some mm-hmm. issue. The job of a de- someone in a debate is to try to persuade the audience that their side is right. And so even if they know about certain problems associated, weaknesses in their position, they're probably not going to offer volunteer those <laughs> if the debating partner doesn't bring them up, right? right? And so sometimes you might well be very uneasy about certainly some self-styled apologists because you often get the sense that they just say, well, this is clearly true. They make it appear as if there's an overwhelming case in favor of the view they hold and very little to be said for opposing views. And, of course, if you're trained in philosophy, you realize that that's almost never the case with mm-hmm. respect to any issue, that, that, that there are puzzles associated with any view, and that philosophy is really a matter of, when, when coming to your own philosophical position, is less um, a matter of trying to give a proof in favor of, of a position as to really understand both views well, to understand the strengths and weaknesses of, of views, to understand the best versions of uh, competing views, and then to weigh up the strengths and weaknesses and to render a judgment about where the balance of truth seems to lie. I have philosophical views on a range of issues, including ones that have nothing to do with religion, but that's the kind of process that I find myself engaged in and that I think most philosophers find themselves engaged in. They can see some merit, some strengths to views that they don't hold, but they incline towards one because it's unbalanced. It seems to have fewer problems and to offer better explanatory uh, payoffs than rivals. But you, and you hold them, though, with some degree of humility and tentativeness. So I'm a philosopher. I take very seriously the goal of a good philosophy of trying to understand competing views very well and to engage with them sympathetically. And I do think there are good considerations in favor of Christianity, but I don't think there's anything like, you know, compelling, conclusive proofs in favor of religious beliefs. I I think there are grounds for reasonable belief, but reasonable people can disagree about how those grounds should be assessed, right? And and I know lots of people that I I think are extremely intelligent and reasonable who disagree with me quite profoundly on the views that I have. But if we strip the term apologist of the connotations of, you know, not really trying to engage in an objective, dispassionate search for truth, then I guess, you know, what I'm doing in that book is a form of, of 
apologetic, and I'm happy with that. I mean, I think there's very good apologetics as well as some of the less reputable sort that you sometimes come across. I think good apologetics, insofar as it touches, as it inevitably will, on philosophical issues, should be very conversant with the best contemporary philosophy, the best thinking, including the best thinking by uh, atheists. One of the reasons for that is, if my own set of views are approximately true, I'm going to come to a better understanding of those views insofar as alternatives are developed in a better way that drive me to try to better understand and better develop my own view. Philosophy is this ongoing process. We're arguing about this most of the time about the same issues that uh, people like Plato and Aristotle 2,500 years ago were talking about. You know, so you might say, well, what's been the point? <laughs> how, how have things changed? Well, things have changed quite a bit. We, mm -hmm. we have improved versions of old views. We have a sharpening of issues. Right? People, uh, good philosophers, trained philosophers, are no longer giving certain kinds of arguments for views because it's become widely recognized that those are, arguments are bad arguments. So there's improvement of that sort, but it's slow, and it's consistent with there still being a range of defensible, intellectually defensible views. And that's how I see things. But, you know, I, I guess I'd want to add this. Because of the history of philosophy, and in particular of arguments for theism, uh, the use of the term proof, Philosophers almost always <laughs> no longer think that way. They've recognized that uh, that's really an inflated way of thinking about what we're doing. We can't really aspire to proof in philosophy. And so uh, all that should be said is that we offer reasons in favor of the view. There can be more or less good reasons in favor of the view. And insofar as you give what you take to be a really good case in favor of a certain view, you're then putting it forward to a proponent of a different view to say, okay, well, can you improve your view? Can you respond to these arguments? But oftentimes, you, what you hear is when someone gives sort of considerations in favor of theism in more contemporary philosophy, you know, people say, well, this could be false, or this isn't just obviously true. Well, and I want to say, well, of course. But that's the case for any philosophical topic. But there can be more or less good reasons. And so we should have a reasonable standard of evidence when we consider these issues. Well, that's very well said. Tim, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>